everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Brian Bowling with you here, and with me as always is Brandon Odo. Hello. We have a special guest with us today, Dr. Shmuel Shoham, a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins and host of the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. And he's going to come and talk to us about a subject that Brandon and I know little about, and I suspect most of you out there are in the same boat. Brandon, what do we got today? We're going to try to get at uh, invasive pulmonary aspergillosis, which um, I think for a lot of us kind of regular critical care folks is not a a diagnosis we often think too hard about, Uh, and yet it is out there. Uh, It's this kind of interesting boogeyman in the critical care literature. Depending on the sources you look at, this may actually be one of the most missed diagnoses in the ICU. Uh, A lot of sources say that most patients who get this are somehow um, immunocompromised, but some will also say that anyone in the ICU is considered (laughs) at risk. Um, And a lot of, you know, autopsy studies that have taken just general critical care populations, uh, this is one of the most common things they find that was not diagnosed pre-mortem, antemortem. And yet, I don't really know what to do with that fact. So hopefully we can uh, leave this conversation with something of an approach to this disease. Yeah, that's a phrase you don't like to hear a lot when you're talking about a... a, uh a diagnosis is on autopsy. Um, right. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's like getting it from uh, the person who graded your test. Uh, it's a little too late. Yeah. All right. So, Dr. Shoham, I'm going to take you into uh, the world of, um, you know, the general infectious disease consult. And I don't know if that is what your routine day actually looks like, but for whatever reason, that's where you are today. And on the consult service, um, you get a call or perhaps a resident or fellow does, but um, you're called from the ICU and they tell you about this patient they have there. It's a 68-year-old female. She's history of some COPD, diabetes, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, takes right now about five milligrams of prednisone every day, so you know, low-dose steroids, some hypertension. She was admitted to the hospital, this is uh, close to a week ago now, with melana, weakness, was found to be anemic on her labs. She was admitted first to the regular floors and then had an episode of massive hematemesis. So they brought her to the ICU. She was intubated. There was a massive transfusion protocol. Um, went to IR. They found a, a GI bleed, a, a bleeding duodenal ulcer, which they embolized. Um, subsequent to that, still intubated, she developed some hypoxia. They thought it was pulmonary edema from all the transfusion. Developed some delirium, need some additional sedation. Uh, incidentally found with a DVT in her leg. They ended up placing an IBC filter because of the recent bleeding. Kind of the usual hodgepodge of ICU problems. About day six in the hospital, she develops a new fever. Uh, also a white count up to about 20 She has a chest x-ray, which, um, you know, it's like a lot of ICU chest x-rays. It's a little hard to know what to make of it, but the team there thinks maybe there's an infiltrate. So they start her on some broad antibiotic coverage with cefepime and vancomycin. They culture her for blood and sputum and urine. Um, And she is actually a a touch hypotensive now, so she started on some low-dose norepinephrine. 
Um, but the upshot is they think there's maybe some sort of infection, but they don't really have any guesses for what it might be. So they're kind of in that uh, morass for about a day. Day seven, uh, she's still febrile, and they're really drawing a blank. So they call ID. And their question for the ID service is, uh, does this lady have an infectious source, and you know what workup might you pursue? So I guess the first thing I'm curious about in a general ID sense is, what is your overall approach to a patient like this? Because I, I think this is not an uncommon consult from the ICU. This lady seems to have an infection, we think. Now what? Sure. So I look at uh, patients uh, in general, and then uh, I think we can apply that to um, uh, uh, pulmonary infections as well, is that uh, the body's made up of tubes upon tubes, and in those tubes, there's fluids that flow. And, and when you have an abnormality in the flow, such as uh, in the respiratory tract, then uh, um, that sets a person up for infection. So being a baseball fan, I, I think of that as being like maybe on first or second base. And then you layer on top of that, uh, it can um, um, the uh, the first line of defense anatomical barriers, is it intact? Uh, uh, we just saw with uh, COVID where the epithelial damage uh, was there. So then multiple different organisms, including fungi could uh, move in. So are the anatomical barriers normal in this person with COPD? They potentially have some abnormal anatomical barriers. And then the third thing that I think is, okay, uh, sort of the, uh, the the first and second line of defense in addition to anatomical barriers is uh, uh, neutrophils and uh, uh, macrophages that are in the lung. Are they, um, are they healthy or are they sick? Well, this person is on prednisone 5, so they're a little bit sick. So it all sets up for a respiratory tract infection. So then the question is, okay, what are you infected with? And the answer almost always is whatever you're colonized with. So, you know, if, if you're somebody who's in uh, New Zealand where they hardly ever use antibiotics unless they have to, maybe you're colonized with a uh, amoxicillin sensitive something or another. On the other hand, if you're um, in and out of uh, the uh, ICU, then uh, perhaps you're uh, colonized with an ESBL uh, gram negative rod. If um, uh, you're inhaling organisms, um, then you could be colonized with uh, filamentous fungi such as aspergillus. Although, again, uh, there's going to be less uh, potentially invasive because normally the uh, immune system can handle them. However, now we're starting to deal with, okay, you've given this patient uh, some antibiotics and it hasn't gotten quite there. Uh, it could be a non-infectious thing. They didn't hire, you didn't hire me to tell you that. You hired me to say, if it's an infectious thing, how can I figure it out and what can I uh, use to treat? So, uh, some more advanced diagnostic tests could be helpful if you can get a, um, uh, the, the sputum, obviously that's good. If you can get a, uh, uh, a, a deeper sample, whether with uh, a mini BAL or with a bronchoscopy, whatever the, uh, uh practices at your institution, that's helpful. If you can get some non-invasive uh, uh, tests such as uh, beta-glucan and galactaman and with all the limitations of their pretest of their sensitivity specificity and applying the pretest probability, that's helpful. I think in 2022 at our institution with a patient like this, I would be tempted to go to a uh, step it up to a drug with activity against ESBL, something like meropenem, uh, because cefepime should get most of the uh, things that are not ESBLs, but then also at the same time, try to 
make a diagnosis if possible. There's a saying, uh, don't cover, discover, uh, in terms of getting the uh, diagnosis. I think that that's a little simplistic because you often don't have the time to really line up all your uh, your diagnostics. And sometimes the patients are too fragile to get a diagnostic, such a bronchoscopy. But those are some of the things that are in my mind. Other uh, things like a radio, radiographic testing with uh, a CT scan, that could be helpful. Uh, particularly might tell you a spot to go after or if the findings um, look like um, something that uh, can trigger something in your mind. Although um, there are limitations also to uh, CAT scans in a patient such as you described. So you, from your perspective, uh, you think the patient was managed appropriately when initially developed a fever and so on. And now it's a day later. Uh, you also think it would be reasonable to broaden their coverage because you think they should have sort of responded more, whatever that means. I guess in this case, it might mean something like their fever resolving somewhat or maybe their white count, things like that. Um, and also to pursue some additional studies because maybe the reason they're not responding is because we have to do something else. Yeah, I, I would say I would agree with you. And I say that uh, I tell people to choose a parameter that's appropriate for the patient. So if, if the parameter is is fever, if the parameter is white count, if the parameter is hypoxemia, whatever it is that you think is appropriate for this patient, and then follow it to see if it's getting better. That doesn't mean that the fever isn't necessary, isn't from something non-infectious, but it is something to follow and to hang your head on. Okay. You guys come by, you make these kind of general recommendations, uh, the ICU services, cool, thanks. Uh, another day comes around. And when you come and see the patient again, what you find is they have broadened the patient to mirapenem and vancomycin. Um, and they were able to get a, a dry CT scan of the chest. Um, they also did the abdomen, which just kind of looks like a, a bunch of gray stuff. There was no contrast, and they didn't have any particularly high suspicion there, but there was no huge collections or anything. The chest just looks like it's a little hard to interpret. There are certainly um, numerous consolidations, particularly in the bases, but pretty diffusely. Uh, they are bilateral. Um, maybe some kind of uh, tree and bud sort of opacities and a lot of interstitial disease. But it's the sort of thing that, um, at least from their perspective, seems compatible with, you know, a lot of bad lung disease, a little bit of pulmonary edema, any number of infectious processes, atelectasis, and so on. The patient does still have a fever, uh, as well as a white count, and is uh, certainly at least a little hypoxic. So you guys take a look at the patient, and uh, one of the ICU residents, you know, when you stop in, raises the question, you know, um, we were just wondering, uh, you know, the patient's not really responding, at least so far, to pretty broad-spectrum antibiotics. Um, what about fungal infections? Is this something that we should consider, or if not, why not? Um, yeah, so uh, I, I think that uh, uh, you had a few uh, important points. One is that um, uh, you have to go back and look at your differential diagnosis and you say, okay, um, uh, what's going on with this patient and what are some of the possibilities? Uh, uh, and um, uh, one of them would have been uh, aspiration in my mind uh, uh, because the patient did have this hematemesis and now they have some bronchiolitis with the uh, uh, treen bud and uh, consolidations. So that would have been one consideration, but you would think that that would be on the way to getting better. So another possibility is um, 
is there a different class of organisms that affecting that's affecting things? And going back to that class of organisms, then uh, you, you start getting a little bit more um, um, further afield from the typical thing. So um, could the patient have invasive candidiasis, not what's causing the problem in their lung, but invasive candidiasis. That's a possibility because patients in the ICU, broad spectrum antibiotics, they probably have a central line. Uh, they, uh, um, uh, they're at risk for invasive candidiasis. We're not really good at diagnosing invasive candidiasis. 50% of the time, the blood cultures are negative. Uh, and, um, and on autopsy studies or similar type of findings, you find it there. So that would be something that I would be thinking about. Um, um, in terms of the things that could be impacting the lung, then uh, fungal infection. Uh, the person does have some substantial risk factors for an invasive fungal infection. Uh, the massive transfusion protocol is an immunocompromising condition uh, in um, uh, liver transplant patients, for example, which, uh, again, using my baseball analogy, they're already standing on second base just by virtue of being a liver transplant. The and Getting a uh, massive transfusion in the time of the transplant um, increases their risk substantially. So again, patient doesn't need to start on second base, but the massive transfusion protocol may have put them on second base. Add a little bit of the five milligrams of prednisone, not a huge risk, add abnormal anatomy from the COPD. And now aspergillus is becoming a distinct possibility. So it sounds like the the patients who, this is of course your nosy resident asking, the patients who you would consider fungal infections in from this general, you know, critically ill population are the ones who have risk factors for that, uh, but that's kind of a broad group of risks and something of a spectrum. So it, it's hard to say these five things you should consider fungal infections and, and anyone else you shouldn't. You have to kind of uh, take the patient as a whole. And there are any number of things that may pretend some risk and others are more, but there's not really a hard line. Is that fair? Yeah. Not only take the patient as a whole, but, uh, but, the uh, the reason that we have so much success in transplant infectious disease at our institution and, and, and other places is because there develops a high level of shared consciousness between the transplant team and the infectious disease doctors. And when you get that with an ICU team also, then people can uh, synergize to say uh, to the ICU, the ICU doctor goes, you know, this doesn't feel quite right. You know, I've treated a zillion bacterial infections. It doesn't feel quite like that. And, and then the ID doctor can say, well, you know, the patient does have some risk factors for a fungal infection. And then you start synergizing that way. One of the ways I look at medicine is, uh, and I'm going to sound a little outdated, is like playing a record on a turntable. There's a certain music that has to play. And when you start hearing scratches, because the patient's not fitting that music, then you can say, okay, this is not quite right. What's going on here? And, and having that synergy between the ICU team and the uh, uh, the consultant can really help uh, to uh, uh, identify why the patient is not on that groove in the, uh, in, in the record. Okay. So, you know, for this patient or patients like this, if you were involved from, you know, time zero when they suspected infection, um, you would not necessarily have certainly treated or even you know done specific testing for fungal infection. But a day or two later, when they don't really seem like they're quite on track for that, you know, classic bacterial pneumonia sort of disease script, now you would. Yeah. And, and I think you make an important point in that early on, I would not be considering a fungal infection. And and in fact, if I did some sort of test and it came back 
suggesting a fungal infection, I would say my pretest probability at that point was not necessarily high enough to drive home that uh, that this is a uh, a fungal infection. You know, there's some fungal infection tests like a cryptococcal antigen or something that are very specific. But uh, if I even if I were to find Aspergillus in her airways on day one, I wouldn't necessarily uh, say, okay, this is uh, a disease. So now maybe we've kind of crept over that test threshold. What what would you do now? What would your continued workup be to pursue? Not necessarily that that is the even leading possibility, but now that it's you know worth investigating further, what do you recommend? Um, a a uh, serum beta-glucan, a serum galactamanin, and uh, bronchoscopy if feasible with a BAL galactamanin, um, and, uh, and then other testing with the BAL. Okay, so you would recommend it you would recommend a bronch, um, including testing on that specimen for, uh, of course, just usual cultures and things, but also a galactamannan, and also serum beta-deglucan and galactamannans. Correct. With the understanding that that when if the results for serum galactamannan came back, that would be uh, very hard to walk away from. If the results for beta-glucan came back positive, I'd have to, I have to put on my doctor hat and say, okay, is this uh, one of the non- fungal infection causes of beta-glucan elevation that's going on, or is this, uh, is a picture starting to snap together? Okay. So beta-glucan is a, a pretty nonspecific test, but the galactamannan is a much more so, and particularly more specific for, uh, certain types of fungal infections. Is that fair? Yeah. So a, a serum galactamannan is, is very specific for an invasive fungal infection, most likely from aspergillosis. A BAL galactamannan is very specific for aspergillus in the airway. And then you have to put on your doctor hat and say, okay, is the aspergillus just in the airway or is it invading and causing a problem? Okay. Now, just at this point when fungal infection was was raised, but we don't know much more yet, what specific fungal infections are you most considering? Um, so uh, it, it, in the lung, it would be uh, aspergillus and uh, perhaps other filamentous uh, fungi, um, potentially histoplasmosis, potentially cryptococcosis, but uh, aspergillus would be the uh, by, by far and away the one that's most likely in the lung. Outside of the lung, I'd be um, concerned about invasive candidiasis that's making the patient generally ill, but isn't exactly a great explanation for what's going on in their lung. Okay, so if they have something fungal, you'd think it's probably in the lungs. It would be even more odd for it to be something else uh, in some other body part. Um, you know, people often think about UID folks as being the masters of history. Can you, you know, rule in or exclude some of these possibilities just based on the, the patient's history and maybe their exposures and risk factors? Or are these all things that it's not a matter of where you got it. <laughs> There's a good chance you are colonized with it. It's a matter of whether it's causing infection. Sure. So there are certain things that would make you at, at increased risk for colonization and therefore uh, at increased risk for infection, because first you got to be colonized with it, then you're infected. So if somebody uh, uh, um, smoked marijuana, then uh, there is aspergillus in the marijuana, and uh, that's becoming uh, increasingly uh, uh, used in um, for a variety of conditions. Uh, so um, that, that's something to consider. If somebody has uh, um, a... Uh, a moldy basement. If somebody works in a uh, in a place that has uh, uh, a mold problem, then uh, then again, that 
could uh, they could be exposed. If somebody's doing mulching or really likes to garden, that increases the risk of uh, colonization. Then there's the geographically uh, limited uh, fungi. Um, if somebody's never been to an area that has uh, coccidiotomycosis or valley fever, it's probably not going to be that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if somebody's from uh, an area that has a lot of histoplasmosis, uh, Maryland, where I live, uh, is one place that has histoplasmosis, parts of Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and then, of course, the Ohio River Valley. I was uh, uh, doing something in Huntington, West Virginia, and I went over the bridge to go into Ohio, and it says that I was going over the Ohio River. I was like, oh, wow, I'm in the Ohio River Valley. I could. Uh, this is where histoplasmosis is. So the geography can help a little bit, but... Um, uh, Aspergillus is also all around us. Okay. Now, you, I don't think you mentioned fungal cultures, whether of uh, of the blood or of the sputum or the BAL specimen. Uh, is that helpful here? Um, so I'll start with the blood. Um, you can go your entire career and never see a case of aspergillemia. We do know that aspergillus does go into the bloodstream and travel. That Sometimes you find it in the brain and whatnot. But uh, uh, in terms of identifying it on blood cultures, the concentration is just not high enough. And oftentimes when it gets into a blood vessel, it causes a thrombosis. So uh, when you do get a blood culture with aspergillus in it, uh, 99 times out of 100, it's a blood culture contaminant that happened in the lab. The one time where it's quote unquote real might be uh, something called aspergillus terius, um, which has somewhat smaller uh, uh uh, bits to it so that you can identify it there. On the other hand, aspergillus in a respiratory sample, that is something that uh, will be uh, positive um, uh, from time to time. And again, it tells you that there's aspergillus in the airway. It doesn't tell you that it's aspergillus that's causing a problem. Um, and, um, and in fact, if you have a, this patient that you described, uh, she, um, she could have aspergillus in her airway that's just there. Okay. Now you did raise the possibility of can, uh, candidiasis, which I presume might include candidemia. Would cultures help rule that out? The the, the first thing to consider about uh, uh, candida is that uh, it is often found in the airway and it's often found in respiratory cultures. And unless you're dealing with a neonate or with um, somebody who has uh, had a uh, lung transplant and has an anastomotic uh, area, then uh, candida in the airway is uh, is not clinically significant in terms of uh, telling you that you have candida as the cause of the pneumonia. Um, candida uh, in the blood culture is uh, almost always or always as much as anything in medicine is always real and representative of candidemia. And that is uh, either from a line or across the gut wall. Um, blood cultures for candida, and it doesn't need to be a fungal culture isolator. It could just be a regular blood culture are 50% uh, or so uh, sensitive uh, for it. So um, there's many cultures that are negative. There's another test that is called a T2, which uh, is uh, increasingly used, and that uh, is a, um, a, a test that uses a little uh, uh, magnetic resonance to identify uh, candida. And then there's some. Then there's the beta glucan that can be helpful as well. But uh, again, autopsy studies show that 50% uh, of blood cultures, 50% of patients with invasive candidiasis have negative blood cultures. Okay. So even for candida, which where it's probably a better test, uh, the blood is not necessarily a huge help here. And and if you did, it's not necessarily, quote, special blood cultures. It's just the ones that are being drawn anyway. But the sputum yep. may be a little more helpful um, 
here, but really, like you're saying, Canada, Aspergillus, all maybe normal colonizers of the airway. And it sounds like, is that why you're a little more drawn towards these other biomarkers? Because high levels suggest not just colonization, but perhaps a true infection? Um, yeah, so so just to, to to clarify to make sure that that I'm expressing it correctly. So if you have candida in a sputum or in a BIL, uh, that is 99.9% not clinically significant, um, aside from telling you that the patient has high levels of candida probably in the uh, uh, upper respiratory tract and in the mouth. On the other hand, if you have aspergillus in the airway, that, that could be clinically relevant, and that's a helpful clue. Um, and so if you have a compatible clinical condition and sputum with uh, aspergillus, that would push you down in that direction. That having been said, many patients with invasive aspergillus will have a negative sputum. So that's why the uh, galactomannan and the BIL increases your sensitivity. Okay. Uh, it, now, they certainly will, if they do a bronch, will be sending... Um, the BAL for bacterial gram stains and cultures, should they also send fungal preparations or? Um, um, they should send uh, uh, bacterial and fungal and uh, mycobacterial and uh, modified AFB slash nocardia, uh, Legionella, and um, uh, and then the uh, the markers BAL, galactamin, and, and um, uh, depending on the uh, patient uh, PCR for uh, pneumocystis. Now, if this patient were somehow not intubated or they are intubated, but perhaps the team is feeling lazy that day, does it add a great deal to actually do a bronch here versus just getting an aspirated specimen by blind suctioning? Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, so uh, I, I think if, um, uh, if you're going down into the alveoli, then you're probably uh, more likely to pick up um, um, some of the organisms. Like the thing with aspergillus is that, that it's small enough to get into the alveoli. So it may not be in the airway, but it will be down in the much lower airway in the alveoli. If your blind suctioning can get down that low, then that's probably okay. If it doesn't, then, then BIL will be more helpful. Okay. All right. So all of that does get done. And as these labs trickle back in, um, it does show that the, uh, the serum, uh, beta-glucan and galactamannans are, are rather elevated, and there is an elevated galactamannan in the BAL. Um, your other cultures and things are not yet back. What do you do with this? So I think now you have a diagnosis. Uh, if, if this was a research study, that would be called probable invasive pulmonary aspergillosis based on the uh, the, the, the patient um, is one that is potentially consistent with uh, aspergillosis, the, uh, uh, the, the the, the steroids, even low, low dose steroids, the uh, massive trans, transfusion protocol, uh, they sort of put them into a patient that could have it. Uh, you have CT findings that are consistent with aspergillosis, and then you have this uh, biomarker that brings you over the uh, edge. It's not yet proven invasive aspergillosis that you actually need sterile culture or a um, a biopsy, but the vast majority of patients that we treat for aspergillosis fall into the possible and probable. And uh, so this patient, I would be very comfortable saying they have aspergillosis. And then um, uh, the treatment for aspergillosis is um, uh, is twofold. One is, is there anything I can do to improve the patient's net state of immunosuppression? Um, and um, um, and then the second part is, uh, can I give them an antifungal? So, um, 
with a five milligrams of prednisone, there's not much I can do to improve their net state of immunosuppression. Um, if they were on uh, uh, higher doses, if they were on mycophenolate, that would be something, but not really much to do there. So then the second part is, can I give them an antifungal or I should give them an antifungal? And the options are um, uh, going to be... Uh, one of the mold active azoles, voriconazole, posiconazole, isabuconazole, or a, um, an amphotericin B product. I think that uh, at this stage, a uh, uh, mold active azole is the way to go. And the considerations, uh, one of the considerations is going to be um, drug drug interactions or toxicity. So uh, if the person has QT prolongation, then isabuconazole is the one you're going to want to choose because that one uh, actually shortens the QT. Um, if the person does not have QT prolongation, then either voriconazole, which is FDA approved for this indication, or posiconazole, which is not FDA approved for treatment of invasive aspergillosis, but uh, um, it is, uh, is is as effective as uh, as as voriconazole with the one caveat that uh, it takes a little bit longer to get the steady state because uh, most places use uh, oral posiconazole. If you used IV, then it would be, in my mind, pretty much equivalent. So that, that's, um, voriconazole is available, IV, PO, posiconazole is available, PO uh, in most places, but uh, some places also have the IV, and uh, isabuconazole is available, IV or PO. So it sounds like uh, mainly the galactamannan is specific enough to aspergillosis that you're not just treating a fungal infection, but you're specifically treating aspergillosis. There's nothing else that really elevates this? Uh, histoplasmosis could elevate it, and then there's some uh, of, of the clinically uh, uh, relevant fungi. And then there's some other fungi that unless you're dealing with a very specific situation, uh, then, um, then, then, then they're, they're not. So um, an elevated galactaman in, in this patient is highly suggestive of invasive aspergillosis. Okay. And, you know, so many of the infections we treat in the ICU are, you know, you know, they're never a hundred percent confirmed, but, uh, because the patients are sick and certainly because we have all these drugs that do treat them effectively, we treat bacterial infections pretty broadly. And then probably some of the time that there wasn't anything or we're treating the wrong thing, but is this along the same lines or are these drugs uh, pretty benign or is there an extensive side effect profile? I mean, how should we feel about just adding these on to an empiric regimen uh, if the diagnosis is not absolutely confirmed or it's suspected, or even if it was earlier in this process, maybe this patient had none of these tests back, but they still look very sick. Could it be added then? Sure. So um, it, it, in terms of uh, uh, one other drug that I didn't mention is in the kinocandin class, uh, caspofungin, mycofungin, or nidulofungin, they're all pretty much the same. Uh, and the um, the first one to come to market is caspofungin. And the way you can remember is CA for candida, ASP for aspergillus. So it's predominantly a candida drug, but it has some aspergillus activity. So perhaps early on you could have... Um, um, added and many places do add um, caspofungin or an echinocandin for coverage of suspected invasive candidiasis. And then they also get a little bit of uh, aspergillus benefit. Although if you're dealing with, if you're really concerned about aspergillosis, then you want one of those other drugs. Those other drugs, voriconazole is, um, uh, has uh, considerable toxicity associated with it in terms of uh, liver function, test abnormalities, drug, drug interactions, and, um, uh, QT prolongation, and uh, also um, patients can uh, 
also get uh, uh, visual hallucinations, maybe not a huge issue in an ICU patient who's very sick that's already uh, sedated and uh, and whatnot. But uh, many patients, uh, particularly in the first few days, have visual hallucinations. It sort of plays with the visual cortex and with the uh, retina so that uh, they can see um, uh, people that have long been dead walking in their room. And uh, they're completely awake and alert for this, but will tell you that they're seeing a movie of uh, these things. Um, so voriconazole um, can be problematic for a lot of patients. Posaconazole, hepatotoxicity, drug-drug interactions, but uh, less of that crazy stuff that I just mentioned. Not crazy, but uh, um, unusual stuff that I just mentioned. I said buconazole, um, uh, some hepatotoxicity, but less than the other ones, say drug-drug interaction issues, and um, um, also uh, not as much of the QT. Uh, and then the other part is none of these drugs are cheap. Um, so um, uh, it, 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 your pharmacy is not going to be particularly happy with you if you um, add an antifungal willy-nilly. Okay, so if you were really interested in adding uh, one of these agents in a just sort of undifferentiated sick patient, uh, maybe caspofungin, but uh, the others you would really want a more clear diagnosis. I, I would say, yeah. yeah. Now, I guess that gets back at you know who these patients should be. It, we kind of glossed over risk factors, but I mean, what are the kind of general risk factors for this infection? Because it sounds like it would be very unusual for an invasive aspergillus infection to occur in someone with no risk factors. But it also sounds like there aren't that many of those people. Yeah, so uh, so important risk factors. Uh, one is a, a recent severe uh, respiratory tract infection. Uh, it, it um, Like so many things, it was first noticed in bone marrow transplant patients and leukemia patients that would get a... Um, fungal after viral phenomena that have a uh, viral respiratory tract infection, they would get over it. And then a few weeks later, or even shorter, they would get invasive aspergillosis. And then uh, with um, uh, influenza in the uh, H1N1 uh, pandemic, we, th we thought that was a pandemic. We had no idea. Uh, in the H1N1 uh, mini pandemic, uh, people started seeing uh, some patients that had severe Influenza then get uh, the double whammy of aspergillosis later. Uh, there's a group in Holland uh, and um, in, uh, in, in, in Belgium that looked at it a little deeper and started finding all these cases in Europe of uh, severe uh, uh, influenza followed by uh, aspergillosis. And, uh, and then with uh, COVID, then uh, the entity of Kappa um, COVID-associated pulmonary aspergillosis came to the fore. Why is this happening? I, I think uh, in a simplistic explanation is that you have epithelial injury from the viral infection, and then um, um, you have uh, perhaps added on top of that immunosuppression in the form of steroids and the other immune suppressants that are used to calm the inflammatory um, uh, over uh, the over exuberant inflammatory system, and then uh, um, an inhaled fungus can uh, can cause a super infection. So uh, that's a risk factor right there. Um, drugs that uh, impact the ability of uh, neutrophils to work are going to increase the risk of filamentous fungi infections in general, and aspergillus is of course one of them. So steroids, methotrexate, um, mycophenolate. 
those are all going to be uh, things that increase the risk. Uh, uh, T cells are also important for aspergillus. So um, when there is a, uh, uh, a, 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 um, a, a T cell deficiency, that could be an issue in the days when HIV was totally out of control in the U.S. There was an uptick in aspergillosis, but uh, uh, it's not generally considered a, uh, an HIV-associated disease. And then there's an, some hematology patients that get um, uh, aspergillosis at increased risk due to prolonged profound neutropenia or treatment with uh, a, a certain class of, um, of chemotherapy drugs that um, increase its risk, not a... Um, uh, a huge issue in uh, in the ICU, and then of course uh, the uh, uh, transplant patients and patients with bronchiectatic disease that you might see from time to time, maybe a cystic fibrosis patient, maybe some other patient with bronchiectasis that uh, has aspergillus uh, hanging around in the airway and then causing invasion. Okay, now this particular patient, she was sixty eight. She had a few comorbidities and she was on some uh, prednisone. Suppose none of that were was true. Uh, she was in perfect health previously and had, you know, none of these quote risk factors, but she did have this massive GI bleed and she's been intubated in the IC for some time and so on. Uh, let's say she didn't, let's say she didn't even have a big transfusion, but, um, she's sort of sick in the way that everyone in the ICU is sick. Would you consider that a reasonable, you know, risk profile for someone to get this infection? Or it would, it would kind of blow your mind if she turned out to have aspergillosis. Um, it'd be less likely for sure. Um, however, once patients are in the ICU for a long, long time, then we do see invasive um, filamentous fungal infections uh, pop, here, pop up here and there, but pretty unlikely. I mean, you've probably seen patients that have been in the ICU for months and never get aspergillosis. So I, I think it, it, it really helps. Uh, I look at it like uh, playing the roulette and, you know, the more dots you put on the higher chance you have. So yes, it is possible uh, that if you only have one dot on your relay wheel that you'll hit it, but it's much more likely if you have a lot of dots on it. In a patient who is clearly has an infection, their risk factors may be more uh, impressive or may not, um, but but they are severely infected. They are, they're septic, they're on a number of vasopressors. They're severely hypoxic. Maybe they suspect pneumonia. Maybe they're not sure. Do you think it's reasonable to add fungal coverage to their antimicrobial package? Or do you think that if there is nothing pointing in that direction, maybe you've sent some of these tests and they're not back yet or they're not even considered yet. Um, do you think it's just a distraction to you know, entertain the idea of a fungal infection? Or do you think that is reasonable? So... In terms of, of the sepsis, unless it's candida, I would think that, that something else is causing the sepsis or, or the, uh, the, 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 the sepsis-like syndrome that, uh, because uh, uh, these filamentous fungal infections generally uh, are more localized. They can absolutely kill the person, but it, it's more of in a localized way. It's sort of, if you think about it as um, um, in the spectrum between a... Uh, bacterial infection, a fungal infection, and cancer. Um, and, and the fungal infection, it, filamentous fungal infection, is much closer to the bacterial than to the cancer, but it, it's, it's sort of a slower moving process. So it, 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 if somebody is in septic shock, unless candida is the fungus that's involved, that's not what I would think is, is the primary driver of what's going on. 
What about imaging? How helpful is that to make this diagnosis? You know, this patient had a CT scan, which, you know, in many cases is the gold standard for looking at lung infections, uh, but it was a little hard to interpret as they often are. Um, What role does it play? Sure. So in specific patients, there are uh, CT scan findings that are more associated with uh, fungal infection than with other conditions. So for example, if somebody's neutropenic and they have a nodule with a little bit of edema around it, something called the halo sign, then that is uh, highly suggestive of an invasive a filamentous fungal infection with aspergillus being a possibility. Uh, if uh, the, uh, Whether it, the person is neutropenic or not, if they have a macro nodule, a nodule of one centimeter or larger, that again is highly suggestive of an invasive fungal infection. Uh, beyond that, um, and, and in, in a typical ICU patient, uh, I think uh, in a typical ICU patient, you're not going to see the um, uh, the halo sign unless they're profoundly neutropenic. Uh, but uh, you may see the macronodule or you may see one of many different kinds of um, presentations. Uh, and um, it, it, so it can be helpful in pushing in that direction, uh, but uh, not not necessarily. Okay. Whew. All right. Well, I think this is uh, certainly given us a lot more to think about with this disease than we had coming into it. Brian, what are your thoughts? Well, my first thought is that fungal stuff's confusing. Um, <laughs> I, I'm glad I don't have to deal with it a ton. I feel like this is one of those things that um, if I have a patient that's very sick and we don't have a good explanation, we sort of dive into this. But um, I'm pretty quick to get the ID folks involved if I think it's really something beyond beyond something that I could treat with, you know, fluconazole or um, mycofungin. So, uh, but this has been really interesting. I'm I'm over here like furiously scribbling notes um, for things to to refer back to later if this comes up in my practice. But um, it's been really helpful. Thanks. Yeah, and that's why I think it was, you know, maybe the focus here is about when to consider this disease because you know we can always call for help, but not unless it crosses our mind. <laughs> All right, uh, Dr. Shrom, what else would you like to say? What would you like to us to take away from this as general critical care practitioners um, who are going to forget three quarters of it? I, I, I would say that, that probably the most important thing is uh, that record player analogy, that you have a, a, a stereotype of what you think the patient should be doing. And when they're drifting off from that, then uh, think, okay, could I... Uh, uh, could I expand my differential diagnosis? Could I um, uh, pull in some help from uh, one of my colleagues uh, to to see to, to help to have them help me expand my differential diagnosis? I, I'd say that's the uh, the top things because 99 times out of 100, the patient's going to be on that stereotype and they're going to be on a um, uh, on a glide pattern. But when they're not, that's the time to uh, to think about alternative diagnoses. Okay. And I guess the final thing I want to ask is, you know, at the very beginning, I mentioned that, you know, there's been data suggesting that there is a fair amount of these aspergillus infections that perhaps we miss in the ICU. Do you think it's fair to say that a lot of people who die with aspergillus in their lungs or perhaps even, you know, what you might argue is a true infection, that was not the cause of their death? It was an incidental finding? Yeah, that's always a tough one is to determine what the attributable mortality of um, of a fungal infection is. Um, uh, so the way I look at it is, uh, is if you have an invasive fungal infection, it's certainly not helping you get over whatever it is that you have. Um, so 
identifying it and treating it is a good thing. That having been said, if you have uncontrolled leukemia, then treating the fungal infection isn't going to be enough. Uh, and, and similar, if you have uh, uh, highly destructive um, ARDS and uh, are an ECMO, probably treating the invasive fungal infection isn't going to be enough. All right, why don't we call it quits there? Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Shoham. Remember, everyone, the opinions you heard here are just that of your participants, not of our institutions, and are really just general educational content, uh, not something you should base your practice on exclusively. Thank you for joining. Thank you.